This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about some of the sneaky ways online retailers try to get you to spend more. And we'll also hear from Bill Mann, analyst at The Motley Fool, about why the market is at near all-time highs, but your portfolio may be taking a hit. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. All right, listeners, I promised you last week that we'd be announcing some news this week, and here it is. After seven incredible years of Motley Fool Answers, do you think we can get away with saying they've been incredible? Does that sound like we're bragging? I feel like they've been incredible. I feel like they've been pretty incredible. Well, we are moving. Next week is going to be our last episode of Motley Fool Answers in this feed. So if you're a faithful, foolish listener, you know that we have a handful of podcasts, including the Daily Market Foolery, Industry Focus, and then weekly Motley Fool Money. But in January, we're combining these shows I just mentioned into one daily show that will air as a redesigned Motley Fool Money. So just like Motley Fool Answers appears on Tuesdays, that's when you'll be able to hear Bro and me on the Motley Fool Money podcast. So we're excited. We really think you're going to like what's coming in January. And we hope you'll follow us to the Motley Fool Money feed if you're not already subscribed there. Also, if you don't mind, we want to get your thoughts on the topics you enjoy hearing about. So we have a four-question survey that we've put in the episode description. So click that link. shouldn't take more than a minute to fill out. And next week is going to be our final episode in this podcast feed, and we want you to be a part of it. Since we've spent so many years answering your financial questions, we are inviting you to ask us anything for our financial show. I I have no idea what those questions might be, but we're open. And if you don't have a question, you're also welcome to tell us something about your listening experience. It could be a topic we helped you understand better, one financial tip you put to use in your life, a funny thing that happened on the show. Uh, Of course, our email is and will continue to be answers at fool.com. So email us your questions and uh, I don't know, just I don't know, whatever. Just email us. All right. Next week, we're going to answer some of your questions and share some memories together. Then we'll take time off for the holidays and get ready for the new show in January. So let me sum it up. Next week is the last episode of Motley Fool Answers as you know it, but we'll be back in January as part of the new daily Motley Fool Money podcast. So if you're not already subscribed to Motley Fool Money, head on over so you can hear us every Tuesday. We've loved doing this show over the past seven years, hearing from you, getting to know you, um, hopefully helping you with your financial life, and all those postcards. So, so, so many, many postcards. <laughs> we look forward to joining you again over on Motley Fool Money in 2022. All right. Now that's out of the way. On with the show. A few years back, I did a series on the little things that stores do to get you to buy more stuff. It included a sundry of assaults on every one of your senses, including smell. Well, according to Adobe Digital Insights, the pandemic pushed more holiday shoppers to e-commerce than ever. And online holiday shopping grew 33% in 2020 compared to the previous year. This year, online shopping is expected to be even bigger. So, okay, how do online retailers get you to spend more with them? And how can you be more aware of your vulnerabilities to buying stuff you really don't need? Now, today I'm going to talk about five ways that online retailers try to get us to buy more and what you can do to spend more thoughtfully. I'm going to go in order of effectiveness for me personally. 
bro, your experience may be different. Uh, and I give the first one a rating of one out of five overstuffed stockings. And that first one is abandoned cart emails. This is when a retailer sends you a follow-up email saying that you left some things in your cart without checking out. Just think about that sad little item you left behind all alone in your abandoned cart. It's feeling so rejected and cold. So cold. (laughs) Remember, stuff doesn't have feelings. Don't fall for it. In fact, purposefully abandoning your cart is one of producer Rick's tips for spending less online. Before you hit buy, abandon your cart at least for 24 hours. And after a cooling off period, the impulse will have subsided and you'll realize you didn't need it that badly to begin with. All right, this next one, I give two out of five overstuffed stockings. And that's when retailers are stocking you online with ads everywhere you go. Now, I know a listener emailed me to tell me this didn't happen, but I once mentioned remodeling our daughter's bathroom out loud in my living room, and my Instagram feed became a stream of ceramic tile ads. So I'm just still going to keep assuming that my phone, Alexa, and everything has the ability to listen to me and deliver ads accordingly. Now, if you have an iPhone, you can use Apple's newish app tracking transparency feature. It gives you more control over which apps can track you on your iPhone and how. Unless you give an app explicit permission to track you, Apple can't use your data for targeted ads, share your location with advertisers, or any other identifiers with third parties. It probably won't surprise you that Google doesn't let you suppress ads entirely, but you can ask it to stop showing you ads from specific retailers. So that's a start. I'll just throw in here that this one used to particularly bother me, uh, especially when my wife and I were more likely to be sharing a computer. Um, Because I'd be shopping for her for Christmas or her birthday and then leave. And then she would come to the computer and she'd see ads for the things that I was looking at for her. So what I now do is I visit a site to sort of reset it. My default is NFL.com. I pretend like I'm shopping for some sort of Tampa Bay Bucks jersey. I'm never going to buy that stuff. And it sort of resets it. And I tried it this morning to see if it still works. And it does. The NFL follows me around everywhere. But I don't care because I'm not going to buy any of that stuff. You can also shop using incognito mode to kind of work at that. But I have a feeling you probably did want to buy something something Bucks. You okay, are. maybe maybe 1% of the time it works, especially after the Super Bowl. But generally, I'm pretty good about it. Yeah. All right, the next tactic, I give three out of five overstuffed stockings. We're getting more effective here. And that's emails. So many emails. And yes, I know we are guilty of this at The Motley Fool as much <laughs> as anyone else. <laughs> so every few months, I do an audit and unsubscribe myself to a ton of retailer emails. Sometimes I do it manually, but I also tried using a site called unroll.me. It scans your inbox. Um, Even after I thought I cleaned out my inbox, it said I still had 68 email subscriptions. (laughs) Um, After they show you who's emailing you, you can tell them to unsubscribe you to everyone. They do some sort of data sharing with Nielsen. So read the fine print before you use this or any other tool if that makes you nervous. Another trick, of course, is to adjust your email settings to sort emails from specific retailers automatically into a folder rather than into your inbox. So you're likely to see it less. That's what I do. Just about any company that sends me sales stuff, especially companies that I might want the sales stuff, but I just don't want to look at it every time it comes in, goes to a separate folder. I check it once, twice a week, something like that. And my junk folder too, because there's often stuff that ends up in there that um, is important. Um, But that's where I mostly send a lot of that salesy stuff. All right, this next one, I give a four out of five stuffed stockings. And that's the virtual checkout aisle. 
Oh, you know how you go to Marshalls or Home Goods or Sephora or well, now you know what stores I went to last week, but they make you walk this maze of random items as you wait for your turn to check out. And online retailers also try to tempt you with add-on impulse purchases. So you want to go to your cart, but first the retailer asks, did you forget something? And parades a bunch of items for your consideration. Now, if I'm buying groceries, the answer is yes. I absolutely 100% did forget something and then my cart just explodes. So this one is pretty effective for me if I'm just casually shopping and not on guard. I mean, my only advice here is just to be specific and stick to your list. Oh, it takes self-discipline, but I believe in you. All right. This last one is a five out of five stuffed stockings for effectiveness because it always, always works on me. And that is free shipping or other spending triggered discounts. So for example, the site might say, just spend $100 and shipping is free. Or maybe if you spend $100, you'll get 10% off. Spend $200 and you'll get 20% off. I mean, what a bargain. I cannot say no to this because I feel like I'm actually getting stuff for free when I'm just buying stuff that I didn't need to begin with. So I have no advice for combating this one because this one is my kryptonite every time. I I can only agree. I fall for it too all the time. Yeah. So that's just a few ways you're probably seeing that online retailers are trying to get you to spend more. But what can you do to spend less online in general? I realize it's a little late in the holidays to tell you this, but my first piece of advice is to make a list and check it twice. Write down every person you want to get a gift for, write down what you want to get them, or even just a general theme and price range, and then stick to that list. That way you won't see an I hate Mondays mug online and think Carol in HR hates Mondays too. She would love this. No, Carol does not need this mug. All right. Number two, put up an extra barrier to clicking buy. Retailers know that the easier they make the checkout process, the less likely you are to walk away. Now, personally, I have to really, really want something if I have to get off the couch and find my credit card. So make it harder for yourself. You can do this by not setting up one-click purchasing, such as through PayPal or Apple Pay or any other sort of payment processor. Also, don't have Google or retailers save your credit card information and try not to memorize your credit card. A good rule of thumb, if you can make the purchase on your phone while in the bathroom, it's a little too easy. The goal is to make the transaction a slight bit more inconvenient because if you're not willing to get off the couch to find your credit card, you probably don't need that thing so much. And my final piece of advice is to check your emotions. Are you shopping because you're bored, depressed, stressed? I'm a generally pretty frugal person, but if things get stressful at work, I buy myself stuff that I've previously told myself I didn't really need. I would have said that dress is too expensive, I already have a closet full, or I'm an adult, I don't need a fuzzy onesie. But this last November, when work got stressful, I said, you know what? I'm getting that crazy dress with the neon mushrooms. Because I think it helps me regain a sense of control in my life. You know, when things are crazy, it gives me a little serotonin bump. I don't know. The point is, my guard is down because my emotions aren't in a good place. Bro, do you have a time when you're vulnerable to shopping? So, uh, I, relatedly, um, I did. I've never really bought much in terms of clothes online until the pandemic, and I think part of it I can say, well, it's because a lot of things were shut down. I didn't want to go out, but I think a lot of it was due to basically being bored and stressed. 
Um, and the trick I always fell for was that they make it very clear that, oh, if this doesn't fit, you could just send it back, get your money back, free shipping and all that stuff. Um, I would say of the things that I have bought in the last two years, 80% I didn't like. Either it didn't fit right or the, it didn't look quite what it looked like online or the fabric wasn't right. How much of those things that I actually return? Absolutely zero. Because I have plenty of other things to do in my life. It's too easy to rationalize like, ah, it's not exactly what I wanted. I might wear it. I end up not wearing it. So the solution that I've recently tried to implement is an old productivity tip. And that is, if it only takes two minutes to do something, don't put it off. Just do it right there and then. That's from David Allen. And uh, David Gardner is a big fan of that too. So now if I ever buy clothes, I try it immediately and decide right then and there. Do I like it or not? If I don't, do the return box, put it in the mail immediately because otherwise I'll never do it. Yeah. For the record, I wore the mushroom dress for Thanksgiving and it got lots of compliments. Congratulations. And, uh, thank you. The onesie, unfortunately, is held up in customs. So anyway, hopefully I'll get that. Soon. Yeah. I didn't realize I ordered it from a country in the Netherlands. Does it need a passport or something? Like what's I, up with that? Apparently. Apparently. But whatever. It's going to be fuzzy and comfortable. All right. Well, listeners, we wish you happy shopping. But more importantly, we hope this holiday season you'll be able to spend it making memories with people you love because that's the priceless gift you won't find on Amazon. Also, you probably can't return it. What goes up must come down. Spinning wheel got to go round. The stock market had a bit of a hiccup at the end of November and the first few days of December, but it has since pretty much recovered, at least as of December 10th, which is when we're recording the show. As of the close of the market on December 9th, the S&P 500 was only 1.5% below its all-time high, which is pretty good given that even with that slight decline, the index has returned 26% so far this year. So that sounds like good news, right? Well, depending on which individual stocks you own, you may not feel so good. Here to help us figure out how the market can be doing so well while so many stocks can be doing so poorly is Bill Mann, a senior analyst here at The Motley Fool. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Am I supposed to say whether I'm feeling good or not? Like with that kind, with that kind of an intro, how are you doing? I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that's the way we all feel. It's a, it's a mixed bag. It's a very it's a mixed, mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. Which I in mean, a year when the when the market is up almost 30%, you wouldn't think you'd be saying it's a mixed bag. You know, it's so funny that you put it that way because b- b- because the the psychology of the market and and market participants and us as in- investors is so interesting because we have a capacity to forget how things were not that long ago. Like most people, most people have done pretty well in the stock market in 2021, but they haven't done well in the stock market as compared to whatever the high point was for them. And for a lot of people, that was actually in February. So long, you know, as particularly if you own growthier American tech stocks, with the exception of the big Manamana companies. It hasn't been that great of a year. Yeah. One of the reasons I asked you to be on the show to talk about this, um, besides you being so smart and good looking, is that on our <laughs> investor radio. Group- <laughs> I might have been ready to say that, actually. But anyway. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, on our investing group Slack channel that we have at The Fool, you passed along a spreadsheet that you created. And it basically showed um, 
how much all the stocks in the S&P 500 were down from their 52-week highs. Mm -hmm. So as we said, the stock market's down as, a, as an index, it's down just 1.5%. But you know, a quarter of them are down between 10 and 20%, and almost 20% are down even more. There are, and it, 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 and and this is where math is amazing to me. I, I I really really love the math. There are more companies in the S and P five hundred that are down thirty percent or more than there are ones that have outperformed the very index that they're a part of, as measured from their all time highs. Now it's it's cheating a little bit because it's not like they all hit the all time high at the same exact time. But as a function of how you feel about how you're doing, one of the you know one of the biggest signposts that we have is how was I how was I doing when it was at its very best? So more companies, only only ten percent of the S and P five hundred is la is down less from its fifty two week high than the S and P five hundred is. That's extraordinary to me. And I think the other issue going on now is you have the S&P 500, right? Index of big, mostly established companies. But then you have many other stocks that over the last couple of years have gotten a lot of attention. They're not in the index. And frankly, they are struggling. I mean, <laughs> stocks like Roku, Zoom, Teladoc, Coinbase, Spotify, Square, Twitter, down 30, 50, some cases, 75%. Would you like, here's a quiz. What is the worst performing constituent company of the S&P 500? Uh, so I, I should know this because I just looked at your database. <laughs> but, but, I, but it's down like 70%. Discovery. Oh, that's right. Yes. DSCA. Down 70%. Yeah. Down 70%. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, and one thing for people to remember when we talk about, and we have said this is a, lo a long time, at, you know, for the Motley Fool, and this is, this is still music to Robert Brokamp's ears. The best place for most people to invest is the S&P 500 index fund. And the reason that that is so, this is an extreme example of it, but it's still an example of it. You get access to all of these companies and it's less volatile. It's not – people have a much harder time withstanding the volatility than they do anything else. And the more, the, the more you put money on individual companies, the more volatile – especially high-growth ones, the more, the more volatility you're going to have in your portfolio. And I always talk to people about, look at – the stocks in your portfolio, and just think about what adventure they promise you. Right? Like some of them, some of them promise you a bungee jump over a volcano. You know, if you own a bunch of, of uh, you know, a if you own a bunch of companies that have, you know, that are biotechs and, you know, space exploration. Like you'd better strap yourself in. It is going to be volatile, and you'd better be able to put up with it. If you own a bunch of utilities, it's you know it's a lazy river with a with a mai tai, alcoholic or non, either way. But like, it's you have to know the adventure that your portfolio promises you. You 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 have to. In fact, it's a great resolution for people for people who celebrate New Year's. You should think about what. 
what do I own and what it, you know, what, what, what should I expect to happen with this portfolio? And most importantly, is that something that I think I can psychologically handle? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up index funds because that is part of the answer in that S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000 to a degree, they're market cap weighted index funds. So, you know, the biggest companies have the biggest influence. And frankly, the biggest companies have been doing pretty well. Which is part of the answer to that weird that weird problem I was talking about. Yeah. Of the top 10 companies in the S&P 500, only three are down more than 10% and none are down more than 20%. Um, And that's part of the magic of it, too. These companies that do well become a bigger part of, of the index, which is why we at The Fool do recommend that. It's not such a bad idea to have some of your portfolio in an index fund. Yeah, I, you know, it's it, it's 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 a really good idea to have some of your some of your portfolio in in that particularly if you are an investor who is just starting out or if you are an investor who worries a lot. I mean, if you worry a lot, own 500 of the biggest companies in the United States of, of America. I mean, I think a lot of the reasons that we pick individual stocks is that we want to feel smart and we like the adventure. But the Motley Fool is all about helping you secure your financial future. And if you say, "What I'm going to do is buy an index fund," you know what? There's not a person in there's not a person in our company who would not say that is an incredible move for you. It's what you should be doing. Yeah, and Warren Buffett has said the same thing. Yeah, the vast majority of people should be. What does he know about stocks? Um, so, you know, when you look at what people are saying are the reasons for this, there are a couple, you know, a lot of these stocks were high flyers last year, if not even the years before that. And this is just basically the investment hokey pokey. Sometimes it's in, sometimes it's out. That's just the way things work. Um, other people are saying, well, you know, the Federal Reserve has indicated that it's going to start taking away the punch bowl, perhaps even faster than previously expected. And that could lead to higher interest rates, higher interest rates theoretically have a bigger impact on these high growth, lower profit companies. Do you feel like any of these explain it or in the end, we don't really know? In the end, we don't really know. Next question. No, in the end, we don't really know, but we can make assumptions. If anyone says to you, well, this is why this is happening, they don't know. But there are, because it is an incredibly complex environment, but it is definitely the case the the price of any company's stock is 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 a function of how the company's doing times how people feel about it at any given moment that is literally the equation so i can tell you how a company is doing i can't really tell you or predict how people are going to feel about it so a lot of a lot of what happened in 2020 to me was you know, in the business, they call it risk off, but it really was a time in which people just said, well, I'm going to take as much, as much of a flyer as I possibly can, absent any real consideration of how the company's doing. So a lot of what's happening in 2021, I believe, has to do with the reality that a lot of the companies that people got most excited about are not magic money printing machines. They are they are all mildly to majorly dysfunctional organizations that some are more dis- some are more dysfunctional and some are are less dysfunctional. Some are dysfunctional in the proper direction. 
And that's how it's going to play out. But you just don't have companies that go up 10 times in value in a single year and have that not be a sign of something that is not related to how the company is performing. And that happened a lot last year. Yeah. Um, let's pass along just a few classic evergreen standard foolish principles, just so that everyone's aware of them. I'll mention a few and you let me know if you want to add any. Of course, any money you need in the next five years should not be in the market. Um, we as a company have really been emphasizing the need to own at least 25 different stocks. I think that's the bare minimum. I'm, I'm totally fine with people owning more. Diversification is your friend. Um, and for me also to remember that you, your, your time horizon is important. We all know that. But I think we all need to appreciate that unless we have health problems, we probably will live to our 80s, 90s, maybe longer. That means for a portion of our portfolio, probably most of it, you have a time horizon of, of really decades. So whatever happens in one year is probably not that important. Yeah. I mean, even for people like you and I who are moving up in the actuarial table, um, we have a we have a a long time before a lot of a lot of our portfolio becomes a necessary component of our living expenses. So I really do feel like it's 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 funny to me now when you see just how short term people's mindsets get when the market becomes scary, right? When the market becomes scary, in fact, you know, the, the, the week before Thanksgiving was a whole lot of no fun on the market. The Friday of Thanksgiving was horrifying for a lot of people. And then I, I think it was Tuesday, the market went up and you could see people go, whew. I mean, what it, really, oh, you know, whew, I felt it too, but what is that? Yeah. Right. In, like, in the span of less than a week. In the span of less than a week. And so, you know, and, and so one of the things I, I like to think is, hey, do you remember, do you remember how horrible it was on January 8th, 2018? And people are like, no. And I say, exactly. How, how bad I don't even it? know. It might have been a Saturday <laughs> for all I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Like <laughs> recency bias is a thing. And the more you're, the more you are. I think probably on the greed side, but really on the fear side. The the more afraid you are, the shorter your emotional time frames become. And I really think that a resolution for people, again for people who celebrate New Year's, is uh, to think about having your emotional time frame match your actuarial one. Yeah, interesting. You bring up 2018. I mean, it's, that was the last year since 2008 that the S&P 500 actually lost money and it was down like 5%. We have we have been on an extraordinarily good run um, and it's kind of unrealistic to expect that it will continue unabated. Yeah. Uh, there's a really famous investor named Joel Greenblatt who runs a hedge fund. He's also written a, a great book called You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. And he very openly says, the reason why my process works is because it doesn't work one out of three years. If it worked every year, everyone would do it. But most people cannot withstand those down years. It makes them feel dumb. It makes them feel afraid. Yeah. So I picked actually January of 2018 kind of at random, but you, you know, it, it, you're, you're right. The market ended up down in 2018. How, how, how much does that hurt you now? You don't even think about it. You don't think about it. So. <sighs> How what, what, other things, what other things can we celebrate for New Year's for those who celebrate? <laughs> well, I just wanted to bring up one, one final thing here, and that is because the last time you were on our show, you explained SPAC, Special Purpose 
acquisition companies. Uh, and then recently on Twitter, you pointed out that, well, they're not doing so hot. They're not so special. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in your opinion, like what's happening there? I mean, did people realize that, uh, you know, these, these situations where managers, managers say, hey, give me money. I'll invest it eventually. I don't know when, but when I do, I'll get to take hefty fees. Is that not working out so much? Do people not like that idea? <laughs> when you put it that way, look, Robert. First of all, I need to be—I, you know—I need to express my dismay. I must have done a terrible job if that's the last time I've been on, and you've just now brought me back. So hopefully, I'm delivering a little more value this time. You know, so it special. So special purpose acquisition companies, easy for me to say, are just a vehicle for companies to go public. And I think that in 2020, so in 2020, and at present, there are something on the order of 400 SPACs that are out there that are looking for companies to merge with. Now, and the companies have to be of some reasonable size. Now, I don't want to jump to the end and spoil the ending for you, but there really are not 400 really great companies waiting to be merged with on the private markets. And that was basically what we talked about then was it wasn't so much that SPACs were illegal, immoral, or fattening, is that you need to be really, really careful in any situation in where there is the whiff of easy money. And that's what people thought was happening with SPACs. They thought they were getting into companies before IPOs. Like that is some magic moment that's going to make them incredibly rich. Now, we 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 don't we know a lot about Wall Street, but one thing that we know about Wall Street is that it doesn't tend to leave money laying around for everyone else to pick up. That's just not how Wall Street has gotten to be as big as it is. It's not, you know, it's not wallstreet.org. Here have your money, everyone. It's wallstreet.com. Dot supercom like they are good at making money for themselves and that's 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 not wrong of them but when you see something like SPACs where everyone thinks they're gonna get rich from something you've got to watch out and the returns from SPACs by and large have been horrible this year and I think it's as a result and I don't see anything better happening with them with all of that supply out there. Yeah. So if you, anyone wants to see Bill's chart of the performance, and it is it is downright horrendous for many of these, just go to Bill's um, Twitter feed at TMF Otter. The post or his, his tweet was on December 7th, and it's, it's quite something. Uh, well, this has been interesting and enlightening as always, Bill. This has been a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's always great talking with you. Uh, at work, we sat right by each other, and I... I am so hopeful for the time in which we're going to be able to do that again. And, uh, you know, I miss you guys a ton. And, you know, I think Molly Fool Answers is such a special, special show. Uh, you know, more Allison than you, but, you know, nonetheless. I totally agree. Completely uh, agree. You know, I think, uh, I think you guys just do great, great work. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to be associated with what you're doing. Well, thank you, Bill. As I've mentioned on the show before, you and I started at The Fool at the very same day, 22 years ago, and you'll always be my favorite former underwear salesman in Russia. That's true. <laughs> yeah, they call that they call it disaster day now at The Fool. 
<laughs> the great undoing. <laughs> no, it was uh, yeah. It, it, we've we've known each other for a long time. We started the same day, and uh, I'm in awe of what you guys do. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for joining us. Well, that's the show. It's edited penultimately by Rick Engdahl. Again, our email is answers at fool.com. Please take the survey in the show description. And also, don't forget to email us your crazy questions or just your memories or whatever. We'll take we'll take whatever. All right. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.